Hi, you're listening to Shared Instance, and this is episode number 50. This week, Alex and I are joined by Carl Bowden, who is one of the key contributors to the ReSwift project. But before we get started on this excellent interview, I'd like to interject a word from our sponsor. This week, we're sponsored by BuddyBuild. This is our first official sponsor of the podcast. They have a simple and easy-to-use hosted build solution for your iOS and now Android apps. Simply connect to your Git repo and start making builds. It goes beyond continuous integration into continuous deployment. Distribute betas through them or push directly to Apple's test flight. I've been using it for a few weeks now on one of my projects. I was able to set it up in just a few minutes, push updates, and share the builds with our testers. So far, I really like how easy it is for testers to add new devices. I don't have to waste time updating provisioning profiles every time someone gets a new device. And sharing feedback is really slick. Testers can just take a screenshot, annotate it, and submit the feedback for review. BuddyBuild replaces our CI server, complicated build scripts, and ad hoc deployment tools with just one solution. So give it a try. It's free right now with a commercial version coming in the future. They do, however, guarantee that there will always be a free version. And now, Carl. Hi. Um, yeah, so Carl Bowden. You can find me at Carl Bowden on Twitter. Basic introduction. So I am probably best described as a recluse. When I'm involved in work, you won't find me a lot on Twitter. And that's the social side is probably something that I am working the hardest on. Um, I'm from Newcastle, Australia. I've been here a couple of years now, and I work for a local branding agency called Mezzanine Media, and they're a conscious branding and training agency. So how do you find time to work on ReSwift as well as work for an agency? Because those are usually pretty demanding jobs. That I was really lucky. I had some time off over Christmas, um, and... Coding, I hate computers, but I love programming. It's the reward of seeing something that you have built, something that you've taken time to put into and see others get enjoyment and enrichment out of. Even just somebody starring it on GitHub is appreciation that you're building something that other people value. As far as finding time, though, that's a very difficult balance. It's <laughs> just don't sleep very much, and that's terrible advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I find that the older I get, the more I value my sleep. <sighs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, the older I get, the less I sleep, the more I value exercise. You've been working on this ReSwift project, which is fairly new on the open source scene, right? Uh, Surprisingly, yeah. Yeah. So where where does it come from? What's the been the inspiration for it? In JavaScript, there's the Redux project, uh, which was born out of the simplification of Flux, or probably the re-implementation of Flux. And Flux was the state model from the Facebook guys for the React uh, framework. The ideas around Redux and unidirectional state flow have been around for a long time. Um, 
a lot of it comes from the principles around CQRS, um, the command query response segregation, uh, the event sourcing, uh, domain-driven design. The core of it, though, Redux, has only been around for a year or more. It's been pro probably the most popular for the last year. Uh, Dan Ambramov, no, I'm butchering that pronunciation. Um, Dan's done some of the videos on egghead.io about how to use re Redux. Beautiful introductions to the principles behind how to manage state. And that's the the largest problem that was plaguing me at the time in JavaScript as well. A lot of the projects that I was coming from had been previously built using a lot of jQuery spaghetti code. So the state wasn't explicitly being managed. It was just handling actions that were occurring inside the DOM, making changes to the DOM, and hoping that nothing got out of sync. Whereas when using something like Redux, it puts all of the state in one place, not because that is where everything should go, but simply to make things easier to reason about. When you know exactly where the state is coming from, how it's been changed, and where to receive updates from, then you have an application that's a lot easier to reason about inside your head. And having people who come onto a project and leave a project, it's important to be able to get them up to speed as quickly as possible. So that when they can see an application that has services that are named in such a way that you know how they are going to change the state or whether they are talking to a server, um, then you know that that should be the only place you have to touch that piece of code for it to affect the way the state is handled. So tell us a little bit about the architecture behind ReSwift and Redux and how information flows through it and the state gets updated. The Probably the best way to describe it is with the diagram on the Redux documentation page. So composing of the Redux library are actions, reduces the state and the store. And all of this is what goes into getting things into processing and out of the state again. The state can hold anything that your application deems necessary to be used in a view, um, to be processed, uh, filtered through functions, to then be used in a view. And as, uh, as you want to make changes to the state, you create an action and dispatch that to the store. And dispatching actions is the only way to change state that's inside that store. Once you dispatch the action, the store takes the current state and gives the current state in the action to the reducers. The reducers all run through that, that action and make changes to the state and then return the new state at the end. So the reducers are 
As far as your application is concerned, the reducers are very much a black box. You don't see how the reducers work, but you know that they take the action and they change the state and return the new state. The reducers, because they're run every time you send an action in, the reducers need to be extremely fast and very pure. In a functional programming way, reducers need to be pure so that they don't have any side effects. And in functional programming, the side effects just means anything outside of that function. Um, so you know that every time you pass the same arguments into that function, you will always receive the same result. It'll always be returned. And it makes the reducers very testable. The other main thing, though, is that they're also very fast. You don't want to be uh, sending in an action that resorts everything in the state every time you, you trigger it. It would be a if whatever you're sorting gets very large, it'd be a very big waste of CPU cycles. And so once the state is then reduced, that actually, uh, the new state comes out to the store, and the store then dispatches or notifies all of the subscribers that there's a new state, and then they update the views, the subscribers to the store. So, so yeah, that sounds... It sounds pretty cool. It definitely seems like it would be easier to test app logic. You probably wouldn't even have to worry so much about creating all kinds of protocols and mocks and Swift or anything. You could just throw in some state and see what comes back out. You think that to start with, and that's the initial impression I got too. Um, the pro protocols and defining boundaries becomes even more important when you're using something such as reSwift though. Having each uh, view define the state it needs and the actions it produces via a protocol means that you're separating that part of uh, that view, that class, from everything else in the application. So those protocols become the boundaries between the different classes in your application. Uh, so you define the protocol of uh, the state needs to display a list of currently logged in users. So that protocol needs list users and it might produce actions such as delete a user, uh, edit a user, and those are the actions that then produces and the store then conforms to those protocols so that that view doesn't need to care about what it's receiving as long as it conforms to that protocol then your store is happy which makes it very easy also to mock out things and tests there were two libraries that were implementing uh, this redux pattern we had swift flow and redux kit so how did the how did they how did you guys come about deciding to merge the projects? When the two projects started, there was uh, the Redux kit started out from the work of Alexander. Um, I know I'm going to butcher his last name as well, but, but uh, Rensville. 
Renslev uh, from Denmark that I joined him on the project that was the only project I could find that looked like it was in a working state when I first started looking at Redux alternatives for Swift and the Redux kit was very functional um, it was composed almost entirely of pure functions without any uh, classes there was only a few structs and I joined Alexander on uh, making the the way that project worked a bit more generic so that the actual function had no idea what the state was going to be and that Redux kit made a lot of sense from the JavaScript world when you were coming over because Redux kit was a pure implementation of every uh, almost every line of the original Redux. Mm. The Swift Flow project that Benjamin Inks worked on was um, so Benjamin is from um, he's German and lives in San Fran now. Uh, and he was, oh, I can't remember the name of the company, he was doing teaching um, for uh, iOS development and he's moved again now. And the Swiftflow project was trying to tackle exactly the same problem, just in the mindset of doing it in the most appropriate Swift way as possible both tackling, tackling exactly the same problems and after a few months it also became clear that a lot of the implementation was very similar between them as well to the point where it wasn't when I decided to try SwiftFlow on a project as well it didn't take more than an hour to be able to change the protocol um, protocols that the different actions conform to move things into a function that conformed to SwiftFlow and recompiled and everything still just worked as was. The problem though was not not the fact that there were two projects. Alexander and Benjamin both did beautiful work on building exactly what they had in mind. And the biggest problem though was that I was getting questions from other people in Swift that were asking which project should I use. I, I want to start, no, I've got a new side project that I want to work on, but do I use Redux Kit? Do I use SwiftFlow? Is one, is one better than the other? And it was, it felt very much like it was starting to become worse for both projects. It was very um, disinteresting because people were being torn by choice to the point where there were people that did not want to contribute because they didn't know which project was going to become the de facto. They didn't know which one was going to live out. And that was a very hard choice to make. It was not just a sensitive topic to try and bring up with Alexander and Benjamin and thankfully for both of them 
they both were very receptive to the idea of merging the projects. Um, so it was your idea to do the merge or? Yeah, go ahead and take credit um, for it. <laughs> Nobody's going to call you. It, we, I bought the idea up, but it's probably a bit inside sports ball, but I'm sure both of the guys had it already on their mind. Uh, can we merge? Which project will win? Um, mm. And it, it was very difficult emotionally. I, I found it very difficult to bring the topic up um, in particular yeah. because it, it felt like I was you know, killing my own baby. It's something that I'd put so much work into that I didn't want it to feel like it was being torn up because people couldn't choose which one to use. And at the same time, I felt like I wanted my work to win because it would also be validating. And it eventually got to the point where probably the guilt overweighed that um, the pride of the work that I'd done to the point where it was clear that it was much more important for the Swift community in whole to have one project that they could refer to as the Redux implementation in Swift rather than have two projects that maybe diverge in maybe important ways. But if it makes the choice harder for people coming into the project, then it was going to be very paralyzing for anybody to get started with either of them. I, I was definitely in that position where uh, I had attended a, a talk by Ben at 360 iDev when he first introduced the idea of, of Flux and then later again saw a presentation from the Swift language user group um, where the ideas were a little bit more mature and he referenced Redux Kit and you know I wanted to jump in and pick one and I, I definitely was in that position. I didn't know which one to go with. I knew that deep down in my heart as well. <laughs> and it was still such a hard a hard thing to bring up with them. And I know yeah, it wasn't it easy be, for them to think about either. It can be hard to set egos and pride aside on projects like that because it's not like you're getting paid to do these things. You're, you're actually doing these because you want to do it and you're very passionate about it. Yeah, I suppose there'd be a different set of interests and emotions if you were paid to do something like this as well. I hadn't thought about it like that. It's interesting. So did the merger go smoothly? Uh, how is everything working out so far? We decided to rename SwiftFlow to ReSwift. So it was still acknowledging that it was from ReduxKit and uh, not from ReduxKit, from Redux but as a Swift implementation and put a deprecation notice up for Redux Kit. So we couldn't directly merge both projects on GitHub. So the only real way we could do it is by marking one as deprecated and directing everybody to the single project that everybody should be working with now, which was the ReSwift project. And the suggestion for giving it a new name was also in the interest of 
helping everybody that wanted to come into it also feel like they had something that was more of a joint effort, that it had been something that was born out of both Redux Kit and Swiftflow. And not so much in it that in as the code has changed, but more as an acknowledgement that yes, there have been questions and this is our effort to try and make it better for the community. Sorry? It has been a, a, a nice project to work with. I've been using it in an app at work fairly extensively. And uh, sometimes the, the documentation might be a little light, but <laughs> if you search around enough, you can find things. And uh, really, a lot of times you don't even need a lot of documentation. Documentation is my fault. <laughs> I take full credit for that, for every issue you've had on the documentation. Um, it, since I got back to work, it has been crazy here. Uh, work and home life has pretty much destroyed most of the efforts I've had on the documentation. But one of the really surprising things that came out of the merger is how big the project has got in Japan. Really? It's probably two-thirds of the mentions of ReSwift um, of people referencing it in projects and documentation and blog posts are all people in Japan. And I have no idea what they're saying about it, but <laughs> it was really surprising. And I'd love somebody to be able to translate what they're saying so that I can get an idea of whether there's things we should be improving for them. And uh, also an open call for anybody who can translate to Japanese. I would love to get some Japanese documentation as well. Oh, but back to your point, Sam, on working with it in an actual application. Um, what, what did you find besides the documentation? Were there pain points that you had in trying to implement ReSwift? The, the biggest thing for me so far was creating uh, async actions uh, because, you know, I was using it to keep track of uh, a login state for a user. And I found uh, one way of doing it. And then after talking with you, I went down the, the middleware route that I liked a lot better. And then uh, I ended up taking that approach and extracting it a little bit to uh, work with RX Swift. And so now I just have a middleware that's based on RX Swift that observes or that subscribes to all the um, updates. I'm probably going to mess this up, but it subscribes or it's a middleware in there. And then it looks for anything that's a RX action, which is something I created and then subscribes to that observable inside of there. And then that RX action is supposed to dispatch another action later. So it's a very generic, easy piece of code. It's probably 15 lines. And now I have async actions. That is really nice to hear. It probably the part that I liked the most about what you said was that you'd taken your own route, that you'd found your own implementation that works for you. Um, the RX Swift, I, uh, so we'd added bindings to Redux Hit for, um, the 
major reactor framework, so RX Swift, Reactive Cocoa, Redux, uh, Reactive Kit, Swift Bond, and a lot of that also became uh, very unnecessary. The actual binding to a reactive framework is only a few lines of code. Even for um, I use it for to subscribe to the state of the uh, from the store, and then everything else in the application subscribes to the the new observable from the reactive framework. Um, I use. Yeah. I think I found that somewhere in. I don't know if it was in the documentation or in one of the GitHub issues or something, but I copied that code. Yeah, I also don't use the async actions either because a lot of the a lot of the asynchronous things I need to dispatch are directly related to API calls. It made more sense to have all of that in a middleware that was able to be replaced that would dispatch the call, wait for a result, and then dispatch an action that was either a success action. And I used different actions for the different types of responses as well. So for something such as a login request, it would dispatch either a login success action, a login failure action, a server error, a login server error action, or a failure with validation required action. I think that was it. And it gave it the flexibility to be able to change the resulting store, um, to be able to split out the reducers to change the resulting store, as well as also more middleware to catch any of the error actions that I could then log back to a... Um, back over the network to the server again. The That was probably a really good place to start as well with the middleware in RX Swift. It, it sets up a lot of the core framework. So would you have a middleware that logged actions, maybe that was looking for some kind of uh, action that conformed to an error protocol of some kind? Yes, um, as well as the middleware is great for also logging actions directly into the console in Xcode. Um, it helps purely with not so much with direct debugging, but being able to reason about what is going on in the application, visually seeing what actions are coming in and what errors are happening, as well as then logging out to the server to have a record of the errors uh, mainly the errors that have occurred. That's really the only thing I found I cared about in the permanent action logs. Um, and yes, creating a protocol that the actions that a dispatch subscribes to is the recommended way of doing it. That's I've only done that in one of the two applications that I work on at work. Um, and it is definitely the correct way to do it from uh, a reasoning about it in your head point of view. I do I do like how uh, easy it is to see the code and 
kind of just poke around and see how an application is actually dealing with its internal state. You know, it keeps my, my view models are very thin, whereas they was, I got to a point where I had these fat view controllers and refactored them into kind of somewhat fat view models, but now my view models are even getting thin with the style of programming. So I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> um, okay, so a bit of uh, a couple of questions for you, Sam and Alex. Um, what sort of background did you come from in programming before starting in Objective C and Swift, or was uh, iOS development the first time you got into programming? No, it definitely wasn't for me. Um, I was doing a lot of server-side applications, uh, but not necessarily web applications prior to starting in mobile. Yep. Alex, what were you doing? Mostly enterprise Java, uh, big, large companies uh, working with large volumes of data, building big web application enterprise systems. Excellent. So a lot of the segregation of services, a lot of those ideas have come from the server side, from uh, working in back-end projects where the middleware, um, the isolation of actions reduces and middleware to APIs has, it takes so much code out of the view controllers, the view models, and separates them into more specific services. Um, I've, uh, on the server side, I've used a fair bit of uh, Laravel, uh, Rails, and Node.js, and it's very analogous to creating a service class that would handle everything to a certain type of action. So you could have a user ac action class that would take um, requests for log in, log out, um, edit my profile, and it would all be isolated into that one class that would handle everything to do with the user. And then in the future, that may get refactored down again as well. But it was great because that was one of the biggest problems I had when I first started in iOS development. I had MVC everywhere, massive view controllers. Mm -hmm. And I was, I knew that I should be separating the services, the um, grouping together the, the services that each of the view controllers were trying to take care of. I just didn't know how. It was something that I was very familiar with from the server side and even from the JavaScript front-end side, but it wasn't something that was immediately obvious when I first came to iOS and Mac development. It's That's probably the biggest... Uh, not so much the ReSwift project, but the concepts behind it that have really changed the way that me and a lot of other people do iOS development. Uh, and I was, by iOS development, you should also read that as iOS and Mac development and tvOS and watchOS. It, it's about the concepts, not about the frameworks. Yeah, I think when I first came in, you know, every bit of documentation said 
make these massive view controllers. And then I started on this one project where it seemed like every view controller was a couple thousand lines long or at least a thousand lines. And they're like little mini programs and they're really hard to reason about. And slowly they've been refactored over time. And we started out kind of doing this services idea and then breaking things out by layer. But this approach seems to decouple things a lot better than just creating like a logic controller and a data controller or a network controller for each of your domain objects. This is, this is a little bit more um, broken up, which I, I like that. The other thing I love is the fact, uh, is the irony of me being on a podcast called Shared Instance. <laughs> yeah. That, but they, everything uh, I've been doing in the last couple of months has been removing every single reference to a shared instance in my projects. <laughs> and that's an inside joke for us that, you know, Sam especially has been very anti-singleton and, you know, it just... Uh, you know, as a joke, we we said we'd call it shared instance, and uh, it stuck. And it's not a bad name for a podcast, but yeah, we're not uh, huge fans of the singleton pattern. But <laughs> it still not. makes me chuckle every time an episode comes out. Yeah. And, and to your point, you know, most of the documentation when you first get into iOS development or Mac development, you know, you one of the first design patterns you're introduced to is the singleton pattern and it's hard to find any prescriptive approach to having well-structured layered architecture in, in any decent size app you know there's a lot of beginner material but not a lot of advanced <clears throat> prescriptive material right so you mentioned before that the Redux kit had some, uh, I guess, contrib projects where they integrated with various other RX frameworks and things. But you said that's no longer really necessary because it's so easy. Will there be any plans to, to make formal projects that, say, integrate with Reactive Cocoa well? I can't say for sure, but I'd say no. The... If somebody had a, a, a novel idea or even a mediocre idea of <laughs> a great way to implement them, I'd be more than... I know that all the guys on the project would be more than open to discussing about it and by all means submit a pull request. It's It's not something that I have a lot of interest in doing personally myself anymore because it's only a couple of lines to create an observable in um, in Eric Swift in, in any of the projects that will subscribe to the store state and create an observable that everything else in the application can then subscribe to. The um, I might be jumping ahead here a bit, but the one of the core things that I would that Redux was born out of was not giving people something that was the right way to do everything, but was giving people an alternative to think and reason about 
as a different way for doing things. And it's easy to re-implement almost everything in, in re-Swift using a reactor framework. And I would recommend to everybody to try doing as much as you can without using re-Swift first, just to so that you understand the concepts of where the pain points are with managing state, with dispatching actions, and even if you don't use something such as actions and reduces, it helps you to reason more about where things are, uh, where the flow is throughout the app. The There are other many great JavaScript projects as well, uh, Cycle.js, um, there's Elm based on TypeScript, and even down to things such as uh, Haskell, the functional programming language, teach you so much about the underlying concepts of how to reason about how things change inside an application, that the ReSwift project is probably more about once you understand how things change and how things should flow through your application, then here is a framework that you can use to give everybody that comes to the project something concrete that they know where all of the actions are going to be, where all of the fruit juices are, and how to read those in a way that you understand what the application is doing. So it's not about giving some giving everybody something new and novel that they can use. It's about formalizing the existing concepts that we have and it's definitely not going to be appropriate to every project as well. Um, so have either of, uh, Sam, have you found anything that you wouldn't apply it to? Well, currently the big question for me is what to do about state, like where if I download a number of items from a uh, API endpoint, I worry about how much memory that's going to take up because I'll kind of have an in-memory database in a way. So I wonder what's appropriate to put into the state and what's appropriate to, say, save off to a database. Beautiful questions. Um, uh, anything else you want to add to that, Alex? I, I think I've got... You know, similar questions around, you know, just scaling it for a large application with lots of different functions. I th the sample projects focus on having a single store. You know, does that make sense to, to have a single store um, when you have a large application? Or are there strategies for scaling that with potentially multiple stores? <laughs> there is no right way to do it. <laughs> um, probably the okay, so the idea of what to do when your states get really big and how do you handle states and stores that start to get really sprawling so the states themselves as they're separated into protocols they can be composed into a single app state and that app state only then needs to be delivered to one store and all of the reducers can be composed into a single reducer function as well. 
that was typically the idea behind Redux, where you're not um, you're not creating separate stores, not because everything should be in one store, but because it becomes a little bit unnecessary when all of the actions and reduces and parts of state become protocols, they can all be tested individually on their own. You might have a part of your user state that handles um, remembering authentication, tokens, the user's name, their profile, their email address. There would You might have a set of reducers that take um, incoming cookies that are returned from an API response that then add those to the state for uh, remembering the token that's passed in, uh, that take the profile that's returned from the API and put that into the appropriate parts of the state as well. And they can both be isolated as well. So you could have an, a single app that would have just your auth state, the authentication reduces, and the authentication actions all with their own set of views, all subscribing to one store that can be tested in isolation as well. You could load that as a single application onto your phone so that the it could also be bundled into a um, its own framework as well that you can keep isolated and keep tested. But primarily everything can be composed in ReSwift and in Redux. So the each of those parts can also then be bought into one single large store and that store can be used transparently throughout the application. But also in the same way, you could use multiple stores and your view controllers, your view models, your views, they shouldn't know any different. All they know is that they're receiving a part of state and they're dispatching actions. And there's no right answer to how you should structure stores and globals, shared instances. There's no right answer to how you should group all of the actions, reduces, and state. You might want to bundle everything into their own framework as segregated components. But at the same time, you might it might also be appropriate to not use ReSwift at all and just use a single observer because your state is so simple. Um, it's so just about finding, have, yeah. If you have multiple stores, what kinds of difficulties would you run into there? It's probably the best example of multiple stores would be when used with a map Mac application that has multiple windows. Um, a Christian that has also made some contributions to the Resource project did the the ReSwift to-do example app, which is a Mac app. And he's been working on the right way to have multiple stores or not so much multiple stores, but multiple windows that each receive their own state because they each need to reason about what filter they're applying to a to-do list if they're all displaying a to-do list. But at the same time, they may also all need to receive the same to-do list. But maybe they are separate to-do lists that would be an appropriate use of having multiple stores spread out so that you have one store attached to each window. The 
actual windows themselves though, they shouldn't know about where their state is coming from. The principles behind Redux just separate each of the responsibilities of the classes so that the the window, the view controller, the view, they only need to know about what they are responsible for. So the state they receive and the actions they dispatch. Um, and, and that's probably the biggest thing I learned from React is when dealing with web frameworks, there is so much else going on, so many globals or shared instances for lack of a better word where you can pull in things that you really shouldn't be touching into a web application the state that you have no idea where it's coming from or how to reason about it and displaying that in a view whereas being able to refactor things out into properties where you know that if something's fed in as a property to this view then you have no control over how that property uh, over setting that property the only thing you can do is display that property it's completely immutable but those properties in react can also include not just values but functions as well that's probably one of the one of the biggest gripes even though it's really tiny that's probably the biggest gripe i had with react where maybe it could do with a bit of improvement the the immutable things that the view receives that it has to reason about are both values for states that it should display and functions that it can then call with the actions it generates because each part of the view is simply a representation of a segment of the state that then produces actions based on what the user perceives on how they interact with the application um, and that probably leads more back to then the store getting really large and the store the store is purely about things that each view needs to needs to display needs to be provided with if you have a table view that has an image attached to every cell the store is not the correct place to be storing each of the binary blobs of the images in. The store isn't there for, uh, it's not a cache store, it's a state store. So you could dispatch things to the store such as a list of images that the current cells need to display. And they could then be, uh, they could then generate um, RxSwift observables that will then produce each of the images from the file system or from an API call, uh, even from core data, in such a way that the view still doesn't care where those images and the state comes from, but in a way that you don't have to store those in the state. Okay, even, so if I had, yep. I'll say, a list of Wikipedia articles or Reddit posts, I wouldn't necessarily keep all the all of those articles in the state, but maybe store them in an offline cache, and then just have pointers to them in my state. Yeah, and how would the what would the view need to know? So the view would need to know a title, 
some HTML content. And the state would need to know what article you were looking at. So what article you wanted to be viewing. So it might be that the state only stores the path or the title of the article you want. And then changing that state would then also generate an action that pulls the uh, from cache or from the internet if the cache is invalidated already the current title and body of that article and puts that either into the state or creates an observable that the that, that resulting view would then subscribe to to display the article and title um, and that can then include images as well the state could either hold a list of images that need to be displayed in the current view or it could it just hold the title of the article and something else might be responsible for pulling those images in which also means that it doesn't solve any problems of where to store uh, where to cache large items where to uh, store invalidation objects how do you know when something becomes invalid they're all still problems that are there and still need solving as well in every single application it's it just helps with knowing what the view is displaying not so much with where everything is coming from because that's still something that's outside of the scope of both the store the state and the views okay yeah i think the from a novice perspective the, the first idea you get is I'm going to treat this as one giant global variable that I put everything my application needs into. But that would be a bad approach for a larger app. <laughs> that that would be. Um, not because it's a bad approach, but because of the way machines store state. The storing of states is struck, as structs is very efficient inside reSwift. Um, the, it's probably not very obvious to people looking at the library, but a lot of care has been taken in making sure that they are all value types or making sure that we recommend that everything inside the state should be a value type, not a reference type. And by value type, it's immutable. And Swift is very efficient at making sure that if the value doesn't get changed, it doesn't create a duplicate copy inside memory. So if you think about your typical um, table view, you might be displaying a list of articles from Reddit, and typically you would have to store that list of articles in memory somewhere anyway. So it's just moving that list into the store, into the state, rather than keeping that list separate inside a view controller that would have to make API calls to retrieve the list or retrieve it in some other way. And you don't need to store everything about that list inside the store either. It's just enough to reason about to be able to display the list. It's, it's not about making things bigger and storing everything inside the state and abstracting everything. It's just about making, again, things easier to reason about. And and it's not something that we haven't been doing anyway. It's 
a lot of there's a lot of articles about asynchronous display of images and content of table view cells how to resize them after you receive new content because it is such a problem with having to deal with large objects inside the application yeah so what are would you uh, recommend it, recommend using reswift only for greenfield apps or is it easy to integrate into existing apps that might be kind of large I've taken to reasonably large projects um, that I work that we work on here internally at Mezzanine, and inside both of those projects, they're two very different projects. One, it only manages the authentication state as well as the um, it's a training application for conscious branding, and it has the current users details and the current screen they're on as well as the current um, the current question title and details and that's about all a lot of that application is to deal with the animation of dragging things around the screen and helping people get a feeling for what they're thinking about in their head and be able to translate that into words and into something more tangible. Whereas the other application is then the management application behind all of those training exercises. And it is composed primarily of a um, tab view controller and navigation controllers. And almost everything inside that section is stored inside the state because they're only very small things to store but also the main advantage in that one has been because there are things inside the state that appear inside other view controllers selectively but not isolated to certain view controllers if you have a list of workshops that may appear in a some of those workshops may appear in a uh, a current workshop view in a history view and each of those views don't care about where they get their state from but to the process of migrating those projects into reswift it was it, it can be done with a single piece of state at a time and as long as you have some way of passing the state or a subscription state into each of the views and a way for each of those views to dispatch actions once they um, receive events, then that's all that's really necessary to start integrating it into a project. And probably a great way to start is exactly as you've done, Sam, with the authentication state. Store users, email address, token, their name. And that's probably also one of the largest problems that I've run to, or no, one of the first problems I've run into in a lot of projects. I want somebody to have to log in, but there's a set of views they need to see before they log in, and there's a set of views they need to see after they log in, which have absolutely no relation to each other, but, but they also relate to the state in the same way. So they both care about whether a user is logged in or not 
what is the last email address they use to log in with. And once the state changes from authenticated to not authenticated, you can then use that to swap out the, in the app delegate, swap out the root view controller for the non-authenticated set of view controllers. The, or you could use that inside a global view controller if you wanted to have, say, a sliding animation between the not logged in and the logged in state. As soon as the authentication is successful, you could use a root view controller that then holds the login and the logged out views and slides between them and then removes the old view out of memory after it slide, after the new one slides in. Yeah, that's the way I'm doing it right now. So my root view controller listens to the state and checks whether the user is signed in or accepted a terms and conditions and displays the appropriate view controller for that. It's, it's worked out pretty well. So I'm curious about whether you handle any animation in there as well. Do you animate between the views? I do because I'm presenting these as modals. Uh, and what about the animation of communicating with a server, waiting for information about whether the login was successful or not? Do you present that to the user and is it an animation? I haven't done a lot with the animation yet on that. What do people do with animations in ReSwift? Are you just kind of out of luck because the state will just change out from under you or are there ways around this to handle this? The animation is probably a really big question that a lot of people put out of their mind when they come to restructuring an application like this. Um, the, the animations probably fall into two main types. You've got the um, the state implied animations and the state derived animations. So by derived, I mean animations to change the view that the user is looking at into the state that it's currently received. So as soon as a user is logged in, you know that you need to display the logged in state and the rest of the state, the application, it doesn't care what was... Um, it only cares the state that it should be in. But the displaying view controller cares that it's gone from one state to another. And it's probably the most appropriate place to handle the transition between those two views. So that's a state derived. And then you have state implied. And that is animations where the state tells the view that it should be displaying an animation. So things such as displaying loading indicators, um, animating an object that you've tapped on, those sort of things, they can be completely inside your view controller, but they can probably be most appropriately triggered by the state changes. And because the reducers are recommended to be very pure and fast, there's not a lot of delay between submitting an action to start logging into, um, start processing a user's authentication login and receiving back the new state that says, I'm logging in now, please start displaying this animation. 
Um, probably other examples of derived state is uh, table view cells that have just been created and entered in, or entered onto the current user's view. Um, you'll notice in some apps, they, as the user scrolls, the cells feel like they fall or rise into place. That's where it's a derived state animation. So that state, please display this cell in this table. And as that cell goes to display, that cell needs to know, um, am I on the screen? If so, I'll do it with this animation to get into the state that I've been told I should be in. So it's not really the easiest thing to handle at this point in time. It's hard. No, it It's not easy because it's not immediately obvious and because animations are often handled by the view controllers in a way that you don't have to reason about why the animation happens. Um, you... We use, we're ingrained to doing this in a way that feels natural to us and it's to be able to reason about all of the code in one place. So a lot of the animations that we do, we just do by rote. It's, well, a lot of them are even handled by the um, UI kit itself. So swiping between views or swiping views backwards in a navigation controller, that's handled by UI kit and you don't need to reason about it. And it's something that shouldn't be in state. And at that point in time, as you start to put everything in state, you might feel dirty for not putting the animation state in there as well. Not putting in how far the current uh, stacked view controller has been swiped off the screen. But the state is only about what you need to know or what the views need to know to be able to present to the user a current application. So it's not about, um, maybe a better way to think about it is if I restore this application from a serialized state, what do I need to know in order to present the current information to the user? And through that is born the, um, the different types of animations that you'll need to handle inside an application. And it's not easy. There's there's no right way of doing things, and that's probably the hardest part of it as well. Okay. Alex, I think you mentioned you were doing something like that, where every time the app backgrounded, you were storing off the state to disk? Yeah, yeah, not, not too much with animation, but just caching data for offline usage. So when the app came back up, I could restore the state as it was when uh, when they last used the app, and then I go and fetch more current data. So it's kind of a typical social networking feed model. Yeah. Uh, very common in JavaScript frameworks as well to store the current state in local storage. The probably the big difference with the JavaScript frameworks is that the the current state is serialized as JSON when it gets stored in local storage. Local storage just stores um, text and not objects. And the serialization of states and actions in ReSwift is done with the JSON 
serializer as well. Uh, so you're expected, if you want to be able to serialize actions to be able to replay them with the dev tools, you're expected to be able to store them as JSON objects, um, which may or may not come into play soon. Um, it, it'd be nice not to have to store them as JSON. I'm not sure how far Ben is up to with the code generation, but he's been doing some excellent work, especially with the source kit and the code generation for allowing you to create actions that you can serialize automatically without having to write all of the boilerplate code themselves. And when you're restoring an application from background, you've got, because of the way state is reasoned about, because of the, the history of the frameworks that have gone into it, a lot of it is based around your application being a result of a stream of events over time. So if you think about your application as a stream of incoming API responses and user interactions, then you may tap on a, um, a user list button that gives you a list of all of the users on the server. What you're looking at is a result of things return to you from the server and the user interacting with it. And at any point in time, you can serialize that state. And then as that state moves forward in time, you can replay the same actions or should be able to replay the same actions if it's written correctly to get to the same point in the future. So you may then tap on the profile screen, then the logout. And if you have serialized the state at the start of the application and then just stored each of the actions on disk or serialized each of the actions, then you can replay those actions on top of this current store from the old state and return it to the new state. And that is an ideal world. That's not really how it's practical to do things on phones though, because of the limited amount of memory and processing power they're very powerful, but you still don't want to unnecessarily lumber the application with trying to recreate each of those things each time. What if you have a week's worth of a user dragging lines around the screen? You don't want to have to run through each of those actions and reduce them all again. You don't want to have to reticulate splines. It's um, So a good way to do it is to serialize the state at points in time periodically and then keep a log of events that have happened so a log of actions so that you keep the log as minimal as possible you might have either a, a counter for the length of the log before it you reserialize the state and dump it to disk um, or you might have a, a time delay so after a certain amount of time the log might be flushed in the state serialized disk, which is also completely separate from your cache, Alex. The, the cache is one of the things I don't like to think about. <laughs> um, and also the storing of the state, I've probably been spoiled to a large degree because both of the large applications I work on 
because they're very collaborative applications, all of the state is stored on the server anyway. So on the state, uh, on the server, it's a Node.js application using WebSockets, and it stores what users are currently have the application open, what screen are they on, how far through a question are they. It calculates leaderboards and sends it out to um, TVs to the manager's um, application, and it displays how far through each of the workshops each person is. But it, as you restore the application, the application doesn't need to store anything on disk because it's a very quick call to the server to retrieve the current state that gets dumped straight into the store. It's not, it's very much the same as storing it on disk. It just retrieves it from a store, from a server. And I really like cheating like that. So that works pretty well over a local area network, I guess. Maybe the, if you were remote. It even works uh, as long as you have an internet connection. The I've tested it over um, mobile uh, broadband as well. And the, the serialization and then compression of the state feeding that over WebSockets is surprisingly quick even compared to restoring a local state, because the, there is not that much in the state that each of the applications has to reason about. It's just sending uh, for the users inside a workshop, it just sends over the current workshop's questions and each of the items that would be in a question. And if it needs to display images, those images are referenced by name in the workshop state. And then as it needs to display those images, it sends then sends further requests for those images if they're not currently already in memory. So it's just the the core serialized part of the application that it needs to display what it, the user should currently be looking currently be looking at. So, so beyond storing like plain plain old model objects, uh, what are some of the novel and interesting ways people are using ReSwift? That is probably some of the best examples would be from directly from Redux. So the dev tools of being able to replay a history of events. So the events and the actions that go into creating what the user currently sees, the demo project of Benjamin's has a slider across the center of the screen where you can slide backwards through history which also means that those events and the current state could be serialized and sent to a server for um, debugging purposes so that you could load that state onto another device that the user has sent you. Um, you could load the state the user has sent you onto a device that you own to be able to debug what exactly the state that their application is in. It doesn't help you so much with things like loading images from servers, but it helps you see exactly what a user is doing. Um, and also for things like the the workshop that um, the training exercises we run, if you submit actions and serialize them, submit them over the network, the server then just becomes another part of the the store, the state, 
the reducers, and the actions. You send the actions to the server, it does the reducing and then sends out the new actions to reduce into your state, as well as maintaining its own state. A little bit messy, but as long as you're trying to keep it centralized into one place, it's a lot easier to reason about as well. Um, and uh, so it makes things like server-side leaderboards, you know, doing calculations for a group of people really easy on the server side when you're just serializing the actions and offloading them. I wonder how well that would work with the UI testing, if you could. I don't do any UI testing at all at the moment. Um, I don't either, but it just kind of, it came to me like if you could serialize all these lists of actions and then play those back, if it would make doing UI tests easier or not. The um, was it Google this uh, this week last week that had the testing framework that took snapshots of what the user was looking at? Earl um, Grey, yeah, yeah. That I think would be a great pair with Reswift to um, restore states and take snapshots and compare them to what is expected. I know the guys at Artsy also do testing where they restore applications um, following very much the flow controller model. They can display controllers on the screen and test them against what should be displayed. Um, and I get the feeling they're doing uh, taking snapshots of the screen. That would be an interesting use of restoring state for testing time. Can also be handy for capturing screenshots for the app store. <laughs> and removing all my personal information from them before I take the screenshots. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. There's a lot of um, possibilities. Yeah. The dev tools, um, the, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, KZ Playgrounds. Uh, Tristoff Zablotki, uh, Polish iOS engineer. He built the, um, the project on GitHub called KZ Playground, and that takes view controllers that you t uh, inherit KZ Playground view controller from, um, or KZ Playground current view controller, I can't remember, and displays it inside the, um, I found it works best inside the iPad simulator and does hot reloading, hooking into um, Dicey for Objective-C and Injection for Xcode for Swift to hot reload classes that you are, uh, you are working on as you save them into an application where you can also tweak values through sliders that are presented on the screen. So you tag values as being adjustable by the playground. Things like uh, integers, strings, even images you can display inside the playgrounds off to the side. And you can also inject those values back into your application as you're playing with them inside the simulator. And uh, he has been probably one of the insp main inspirations also for me to want to dig further into the hot reloading code to get 
almost the um, it's not too far off having the same parity with the original Redux project and the dev tools with being able to replay states as well as also hot reloading code as you make changes. So being able to um, change storyboards and the way classes display things into the application as you're making changes in the code and saving them and having it reload in the simulator all, at, all while it's live. And then being able to rewind back through events so that you can test to make sure that your animations are working going from a logged out to a logged in state. You can tweak those animations and replay them in the simulator. It's definitely a utopia and also scary to think about the fact that it could be that easy. Christoph just makes it look so easy, especially in his presentations. It's a beautiful thing to see, especially the way that for such a long time it's been so much faster than even the um, Xcode playgrounds, and it works with Objective-C as well for managing all of the um, existing projects. He's done such a great job. So there's some presentations online that we can link to in the show notes? Absolutely. Uh, straight from the KZ Playground landing page on GitHub, he has links to the, the basic demo and the advanced talk where he talks more in depth about uh, what types of things can be hot reloaded and what can't be, specifically more around the classes and restoring states on those classes as things get... Um, as you try to swizzle classes into place. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely include links to those in the show notes. Um, and so yeah. you have an upcoming presentation, right? I went to my first Sydney Cocoa Heads on uh, February the 17th, 18th. Uh, so Sydney Cocoa Heads, is, uh, they meet every third Thursday of every month. It turns out it's actually quite a train journey for me. Um, about three hours down on the train and it took about four hours to get home again because of track works. But that was an amazing... Um, yeah, it's very hard when you're in such a small town as Newcastle where you don't get a lot of other iOS or Swift developers to talk to. It's nice having something that's formalized there for everybody to meet. And it feels so friendly knowing that everybody is also all on the same level, that you're all dealing with the same issues and problems in development, and that you're all trying to help each other come up with great solutions for them. And that is probably the most valuable thing I've found with the Kogo Heads. And I've also been enlisted to give a presentation next month about ReSwift and the third Thursday of March, which also turns out as becoming a little bit a little bit scary, uh, as Sydney Cogo Heads is one of the largest Cogo Heads meetups, uh, purely because of Australia's population grouping across the East Coast. Um, uh, apparently, the one of the other largest ones was the London Cocoa Heads meetup. Um, there was about 
120 people at the Coheads meetup in February. Wow. And that's a really good number. And I met a lot of, a lot of great people there. And that was so welcoming for it being my first time. It was such an enjoyable experience. And I really, um, I met a lot of people that were very opinionated, but also opinions that differed so greatly from one person to the next. So it'll certainly make for an interesting question and answer section after the presentation. So, um, so you well go as, up to one meeting and then they rope you into presenting the next one, huh? <laughs> um, <laughs> I had been dubbed in as somebody who would be more than likely willing to volunteer if they didn't tell me much about it, I guess. <laughs> um, the, uh, there's also a couple of other great talks. Uh, so the one before me is on StateX, and I'm trying to find the guy that's giving the talk. Um, it's turning out to be a little bit difficult. Um, and that's a JavaScript. Uh, so it works with React Native primarily, and it's pretty much a JavaScript port of Redux in a way that is very cross-platform. Uh, so it handles a few more other things for dealing with state management in iOS as well as Android, as well as on the web. Um, and then after my talk is a talk on Fastlane, which I am looking forward to. I have... I have been quietly ignoring the news about Fastlane. Felix has done an amazing job on it, but because I haven't hit a lot of the problems because I'm only dealing with internal products at the moment, I've just been trying to put it out of my mind and praying that I get to the talk in Sydney before I need to use any of the Fastlane tools. They can be they can be nice to use, but sometimes they they end up breaking, and then you're you're stuck wondering scratching your head wondering why this is breaking and how to fix it and it's very much a rapidly moving project yeah but, but we we also get that at the moment with code signing don't we oh yeah 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 it's not code yeah. signing certificates uh feel like they're rapidly moving at times yeah well they have a solution for that too nowadays just don't expire the certificates until 2026 <laughs> Sounds like a good way of putting the problem off. Yeah. 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 Well, that was but, one of our issues the other day because the one cert expired and we weren't running the latest version of Xcode. Right. So our builds wouldn't archive and upload. Yeah, and there wasn't really any mm -hmm. communication about it either. The intermediate certificate from Apple expired, um, for the, I think, for the first time last week. And uh, that caused a decent amount of headaches for me because, you know, just tracking down the issue for one. And we've got until, was it 2023 before it happens again? <laughs> yeah. well, this iOS thing, it's just a fad. We shouldn't hit, have to worry about that. I, I think the thought was as long as you had Xcode 721 installed, it would take care of it for you, so... I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sure from their thinking, everybody stays up to date and it, it right. should have gone unnoticed. 
<laughs> An apple is doomed anyway, right, guys? Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there oh. anything else you want to share before uh, we call this one? Um, no. No, it has been so great talking to you guys. Um, it, I really enjoyed the conversation, even though I did most of the talking. Sorry. <laughs> <Are we? laughs> no, that's good. We definitely appreciate you joining us on the podcast. This is a project that Sam and I both kind of stumbled into and, and started using on our own. And uh, this has been incredibly helpful. One of the things we liked about it was it was, you know, getting into it was so easy to see what's going on. There wasn't like a huge learning curve and uh, you, you could get started pretty easy. But then, you know, as you start thinking about scaling and, and larger applications, you know, there are those those edge cases that you have to start thinking about a little bit more and how you want to structure it as you grow. <laughs> yeah. Um, probably the one of, probably the thing I'd ask everybody to do is argue with Benjamin, Alexander and myself. Uh, the purpose of the project isn't to tell people the right way to do things. It's to open the discussion and tell us we're wrong. I would be more than happy if the project was Sherlocked. At least then, Apple would be giving us some good direction. And until then, it it's meant to be a discussion. It's meant to be open for people to give us their feedback as well. Cool. Is there, are there any other uh, call-outs or call-for-help type of things you'd like to ask for? Maybe some documentation contributions or anything like that? I would love documentation help. Um, I, I'm dealing with Jazzy Docs, uh, Jazzy at the moment for generating the documentation, which is a great project by the Realm guys. Mm, I better double check that at some point. Um, I think it was the guys that did Swiftlint, um, JP and the others, and it generates the documentation both from it's using a custom fork of mine of chassis that generates the documentation from each of the doc blocks in the classes in the swift files as well as also from a set of markdown files to add additional documentation and um, probably the biggest problem i have at the moment is that i'm having to store document documentation in two separate files for the same piece of information at the moment um, and it's just a a matter of time for me to sit down and deal with that and then after i solve that is probably the best time for people just to start dumping in documentation write tutorials get us to link to them it's great to see the amount of community support that we've had so far it's been really really welcoming that's definitely a good project to get behind and you guys have done a lot of good work oh and we're open to contributors as well. So every person who gets to, uh, we've followed the artsy model with opening the project and adding contributors, um, committers to the project. If they've managed to commit even documentation to the project, then you'll be offered an invitation to be a committer on the project. All right. That sounds pretty cool. All right. I think, I think that's it for this episode. Uh, why don't you guys tell us where you can be found? 
Uh, hi, I'm Carl Bowden. You can find me at Carl Bowden on Twitter. And I'm at Sam Quarter on Twitter. I'm AJ Robinson. And unfortunately, not joining us today was Alex Argo, who is at Alex Argo on Twitter. He's off vacationing somewhere. Or actually, he's on a secret assignment. One of those two. <laughs> the podcast is at Shared Inst on Twitter. And uh, also, we do have an announcement about 360 iDev. You can use the discount code INSTANCE20, that's INSTANCE20, to receive a 20% discount on a ticket to 360 iDev in August. And join us in the in our Slack chat as well. You can sign up for that at chat.sharedinstance.com. Lastly, I would like to thank again our sponsor, BuddyBuild. Do check them out on the web at buddybuild.com. Thank you, guys. Thank you, especially, Carl, for being very flexible about timing and getting on this phone call. I know it wasn't easy. <laughs> the, it's been a pleasure. It absolutely has been.